Matthew chapter 18. We've been working our way through a very interesting chapter. Jesus is about a month, scholars are a little divided, about a month though to the cross. So his time on earth is, is waning. His time with his disciples is coming to a close. And there's so much that Jesus is wanting to prepare them for. Rightfully so. So much Jesus knows that, that, that they're not ready for. Again, a lot of this will be, will find its remedy in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is trying to prep them. And one of the things that he's doing in prepping them is giving them a little conflict resolution skills. You know, hey, my church, I'm going to build so that the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. But you guys will be a part of it. And when you get together a group of sinners, even though they're saved by grace, you're going to have conflict. So Jesus, right from the beginning, is like, let me give you some tools, some very practical ways in which you can deal with conflict in your midst. Verse 15, Jesus tells them, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Keep it private. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, that's a pretty radical exhortation. If your brother sins against you. So, I mean, this is a sin. It's not a complaint. It's not, you hurt my feelings. It's, you did something wrong to me. And if you can't get over it, if you can't just grant some grace, if it's a burr in your saddle, will you go to the man or the woman? Mano y mano. This is not gossip. You're not chit-chatting about it. You're not posting your, your grievances on social media. You just go to the person face-to-face out of love, sincerity, to say, you hurt me. I've been wounded. You might not even know that, that you said what you said and it landed the way that it landed, but that's why I'm just coming. I don't want this to be, be between us. And so you go. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say, if they accept what you say, and repent, you've gained a brother. That's not what he says at all. In fact, Jesus kind of places it in its most basic. If he hears you, if he hears, if he's just willing to listen and to hear you out, well, hey, we might agree to disagree on that. I'm sorry you feel the way that you do. But if he just is willing to hear you, then you've gained a brother. You should let it go. Now, within this idea of conflict resolution, there is a component to the ability to do this that's significant. You see, the only way that you can actually, okay, they've heard me, now i got to move on. The only way you can do that is to forgive. You know, when we talk about forgiveness, sometimes we convolute things, and it can delve into the semantics, understandably. But understand, forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation are all three siblings, but they have different functions and roles. Now, when there's a conflict between two people, when one person has sinned against another, so that you have a victim and you have the perpetrator, there are two different ways that each of the, the parties should handle the conflict. Now, the goal, ultimately, is reconciliation. And reconciliation is, is that what was broken is reconciled back and we're moving forward. So it's fixed. That's the goal, ultimately. I've sinned against you. I want our relationship to be fixed. Now, that doesn't always happen. Reconciliation might be the goal, 
But sometimes the other party's a little stubborn or not really with it. And so you have forgiveness and you have repentance. You need both for reconciliation to happen. But forgiveness and, and repentance play a role. Forgiveness is significant for the victim. You see, forgiveness enables the victim to move forward regardless of the way in which the perpetrator handles the situation. Now, if the perpetrator, the perpetrator doesn't forgive, does they? No, they're, they're, they cause the harm. And so in, in order for there to be reconciliation, yes, the victim has to forgive, but for reconciliation to occur, the perpetrator has to repent. You see, if the perpetrator is like, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't even, man, will you forgive me? They own it. They acknowledge it. They even want to pay restitution to fix it. If there's repentance on the part of the perpetrator, and then, and then the victim's like, you know, I love you. I forgive you. Now we have reconciliation. We move forward. But let's say you're the victim, and the perpetrator isn't willing to repent. Can reconciliation actually happen? I don't think so. But can forgiveness still occur? Absolutely. You see, forgiveness allows the victim, without the involvement of the person that did the harming, to move on. And to move on in a healthy way. Not carrying bitterness, not carrying grief, not carrying uh, animosity. Again, you'd like, you'd like the person to repent and own it. But what if they don't? Do they now hold this over you forever? I've met people that have carried bitterness a lifetime. They were a victim and they're continuing to be victimized. Because they can never move beyond it because they, they can't forgive. Now forgiveness is a big, a big task, isn't it? Especially forgiveness with, the, with a lack of repentance on the person that did harm. Now, yes, reconciliation may never happen. You might go two different ways. But repentance enables you to gain healing. It's actually Christ-like. Consider what Jesus said on the cross. Jesus has been nailed to a tree to pay for the sins of the world. And what does he declare? One of his seven statements, he says, Father, what? Forgive them. For they know not what they do. See, even Jesus from the cross was able to forgive. But note, forgiveness will often demand a cross. That you'll have to bear it. But that's how you gain healing. That's how you gain restoration. That's how you can move forward, letting go. Now, Jesus says this in verse 15. And I mentioned this last Sunday. But I think the case can be made that Peter, our boy Peter, so relatable. The man that opens mouth, inserts foot, and then tries to talk. Peter. Peter, when Jesus says this, I think Peter doesn't listen to another thing that's said. Like he's like, I understand that to do what you just said would require forgiveness. I think Peter gets it. He understands the implications of what Jesus is saying and how this even works. And so when the moment presents itself that Peter can interject, that he can jump into the fray, verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus. And he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Again, you see the link. Peter's like, wait, I've been, I've been chewing on this. If a brother sins against 
you should go to the, okay, I get that. It would necessitate forgiveness. But like how many times, you know, can we forgive? Like there's got to be a limit to what you're saying here, Jesus. Now, this seven number that Peter pulls out is, is not really by accident. During this time period, in regards to rabbinical traditions, which you have to take with a bit of a grain of salt. But the rabbis taught that you should forgive three times. And they based this to some prophecies and some uh, biblical examples going back to the prophet Amos. But they would preach that you should, you should forgive three times. Now the fourth, you're done. Three times. And they felt like that was pretty generous. I'll forgive Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three. Good. And so Peter here, he's like, well, you know, the rabbis, these holy people, they, they'll forgive three times. I'll double it and add one because I'm Peter. So how about seven, seven times? Now Peter's probably thinking like, I'm being real benevolent here. You know, I'm being real, like Jesus is, this is going to be another one of those moments where flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who's in heaven. I mean, he's pumped up. But look at what Jesus says. He said to him, I do not say to you <clears throat> up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. <clears throat> this is a pretty famous passage. Uh, you've probably heard this. You probably are even familiar with the passage. How many times should we forgive? Seven times. No, 70 times seven. Now, the legalist places a numerical value on this. 490. And we know some people that we're about at 480. And we're holding tight. I, you got 10 more mulligans, buddy. And then you're done. You're cut off. I'm, I got to the 70 times seven. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk and we'll, we'll, you know, there's a number here. You know, it's interesting. Some will say, well, Jesus is, Jesus is throwing out a number. This is ridiculous. To the idea that, that you should just keep forgiving. That there should, be no, there should be no end to your forgiveness. You should forgive and you should forgive and you should forgive and you should forgive. And that Jesus saying 70 times 7, is, 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 he's, there's a little hyperbole, a little exaggeration of like, you should always forgive, Peter. I, you know? Interesting. I've been chewing on this this week. 490 times forgive. Could it be that Jesus is not actually giving Peter a number, but that Peter is being given an event? Hey, how many times should we forgive? You know what? Forget about how many times. You should forgive until this happens. Well, Zach, what event would this be referring to? 70 times 7. Very quickly, if you would, turn to the left, a few pages, to the book of Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9 in particular. Daniel is receiving some incredible prophetic visions. God's revealing to him his plan for the ages. But he's honing it in to a specific concern that Daniel had. You see, Daniel was a prophet serving in Babylon during the exile. The children of Israel, God's people, for the first time since Egypt, had been removed from the land. The land of promise. The land that they had been given. Daniel's concerned that because of their sin, because of their wickedness, that maybe they've now negated their privilege with God. 
that they've negated and circumvented God's plan for Israel, that, that God was done with the Hebrew people. This is what Daniel's concern is. We've so messed it up, mucked it up, that God's done, that he's wiped his hands. And so God comes to Daniel, and in addition to revealing all kinds of incredible things to him, uh, providing him some messianic insights, etc., he says, he says, I still have a plan for Israel. We call this the 70 weeks prophecy. And not only does God reiterate to Daniel that he still had a plan for Israel, but he gives a very particular timeline for that plan. He says, verse 24 of chapter 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 70 weeks. Again, we could spend a whole lot of time delving into the original language and how we gather this, but this is literally 70 couplings of seven. And within context, we're talking about years. 70 times seven, did that sound familiar? 490 years. And so God comes to Daniel and he says, hey, chill out, I have a plan. In fact, I've designated 490 years to deal with the Hebrew people. And then we're given this quick list of what God will accomplish at the end of the 490 years. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you come back to this exchange with Peter. Lord, <clears throat> how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Again, is Jesus giving Peter a number? Or is he referring to an event? He's saying, you forgive, and you keep forgiving, and you forgive, and you forgive and forgive and forgive until the kingdom comes. Is the 77 a reference to an event? Because guess what happens at this event? Not only is sin brought to a close and transgressions end and a kingdom gets ushered, but all wrongs get, get corrected. Which is helpful for those that are struggling with forgiveness, especially with the lack of repentance. Because we feel like a victim, right? We feel like a victim because we are a victim. I've been hurt. I've been harmed. You just want me to let go. Well, if I let go, who's, gonna, who's going to right the wrong? Justice. Who's going to right the wrong? And what is Jesus saying? He said, you keep forgiving. You don't worry about that. You keep forgiving until I right the wrong. Because the day will come when I will bring to a conclusion, a close of all of this, when the kingdom comes. Either way you look at it, the idea is forgive. And why is Jesus exhorting us to forgive? Because he, he doesn't want us trapped in bitterness and ill feelings. It's easier to forgive when someone repents, it's true. But what do you do when someone doesn't? When someone doubles down? When someone hurts you even more? How do you move forward? Sometimes you just gotta forgive. Forgiving is not the same thing as forgetting. 
the Bible teaches that we should be prudent. Trust doesn't automatically come back with forgiveness. But forgiveness is a letting go. Now moving forward, we might be in a new context, especially if there's no repentance. And moving forward, I, you know, you've, you've broken a trust here that, that, you know, it might take a lot of time. But i got to let go of the hurt. So forgive. Jesus continues. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, <laughs> you got to pause here for just a second. This parable that we're about to be given of the, for, the unforgiving servant <clears throat> is, I would, I would say, uh, <laughs> maybe one of the most difficult of all of the parables to fully decipher. Um, especially <clears throat> if you just take it at face value, some of the implications of what Jesus is saying are, well, I'll be real. It's a tough pill to swallow. In fact, you kind of stand on, on really holy, holy ground where you're like, I, I don't know. Oh, gee. Now, I, I want to point out, again, before we, because what we're going to do, we're going to read through the whole parable, and then I think you'll understand what I'm saying. But I want to point out, before we do, that Jesus says here, look again, the kingdom of heaven, again, which I think is a reference to the 70 times, so there's our context. He doesn't say it is this. He says it's like. So, so there is an illustrative value to this. And sometimes with parables, you can get into trouble when every single detail of the parable, you're trying to, to equivalent to some other truth. Uh, a parable, para, it's a coming alongside of. So there's a truth about the kingdom that the story is to come alongside and illustrate. Sometimes you can use that as an escape valve to, to circumvent things that might be difficult. <laughs> but by and large, it's a, good, it's a good rule of thumb. Let's read the parable. <clears throat> Jesus says, and when the king had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. <laughs> a talent, just for some reference. A talent was the equivalent of about 15 years of wages. So when we're told, when we're given this number, that this servant owed 10,000 talents, I mean, this is like, I'm not great at math. This is a huge debt, you know? I mean, I mean there's no 15, 15 years of labor to pay off one, and you owe 10,000? Leaves you, leaves you with an insert. There's no way. This is Jesus. There's no way the servant can pay this back. Like the debt's too, it's insurmountable. How did he even rack up such a debt? <laughs> Who knows? So the, this owes 10,000. But, verse 25. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold <clears throat> with his wife and children and all that he had so that the payment could be made which is a brutal way of handling debt, but that's the way that it was a custom in that time. Verse 26, so the servant, <clears throat> he falls down before the king, and he says, Master, 
have patience with me and I will pay you all. The man can't make this promise. This is a ridiculous statement. He can't pay the guy back. Have patience. I'll get it to you in like 30,000 years. You know, multiple lifetimes. Well, verse 27. So the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant, we're told, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was not was not a little amount of money, about three months of wages. Pales in comparison to what the servant owed. It's a good amount of money. So he finds the servant that owes him a hundred denarii. He lays hands on him, and he takes him by the throat, and he says, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The exact same words that had come out of the servant earlier regarding a debt there's no way he could have ever paid now come out of the mouth of this servant regarding a debt that he could actually probably pay off and satisfy if given time. But, verse 30, he would not. Note, he, it wasn't that he couldn't. He wouldn't. This is a decision of the He would not. But he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. And they came and they told their master all that had been done. Little tattletales. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I have had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then this is not part of the parable, but Jesus' commentary. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. (laughs) Who are the torturers? I don't want to know. It's a very complicated parable. And you can read commentators and, and you can find a diversity of varying opinions. And I want to clarify up front that, that I'm not saying that I have this one buttoned down. <clears throat> I think we might spend an eternity just chewing on this one. And might not even fully understand it till we get to heaven. till we actually get to the kingdom. It's like, okay, I, I get this. But this is to the best of my ability, the way that I'm, I'm viewing what Jesus is, is talking about. And note that it's within the context of two things, the kingdom and forgiveness. So you have this servant who owes an insurmountable debt. And the king, moved with compassion, forgives the debt, wipes it clean. I mean, this is a massive amount of money. To forgive that servant such a great debt would come at a great cost to the king himself. You know, sometimes I think we, we inaccurately define grace in such a way that, that we present it as, as being somehow free. 
Now, it is true that grace is, is absolutely free to you. To the recipient of grace, it is undeserved merit. It is something that God bestows, something that God gives, something that only we receive. You don't earn grace. You don't deserve grace. You don't merit grace. It's given and you receive it. But that doesn't mean, while it might be free to you, that it's cheap or somehow inexpensive. You see, the only way in which God could grant you grace is to take your debt upon himself, which was sin. You see, grace bestowed to you is so expensive, it costs Jesus his only begotten son. The most costly thing that was. Don't ever think that grace is cheap. It's incredibly expensive, but it just costs God, not you. And so the only way the king could forgive the servant is to absorb this a massive amount of loss. And you're this servant, and what should have been the reaction? I mean, it should have changed you, shouldn't it? That should have had an effect. And yet Jesus, in this parable, he presents just like the opposite reaction that should have been, right? Because you have this servant who's just been granted this incredible get-out-of-jail-free pass. His wife, his kids are about to be taken from him, everything he owes. Like, it's all going down. His life will be ruined. And it's the king that comes in and says, I have compassion. I will take that debt upon myself. I'm forgiving you. And then this servant goes out immediately. In the way Jesus frames it, it's like instantly. And he goes and he finds a guy that owes him something that can actually be repaid. Something that, that is, isn't apples to apples. The numbers aren't even close. And what is the, the man grabs him by the throat. He, he makes this same appeal. Have, have, have mercy on me, you know. And this servant is unwilling to forgive. And he throws him into prison, making it even now more difficult to repay the debt. Word gets back to the king and he comes to the servant and he's like, wait a second. And note how the servant is, is, is described by the king at this point. Note, it's the word I have underlined in verse 32. He called him and he said, you wicked servant. We don't have that, that dis description of the servant initially when he owed his own debt, did we? But, but now something has been revealed about the servant that, that revealed, that unmasked a deeper identity. Wicked. I did this for you, and now you've done this? And, and then the king has him, reverses the debt <laughs> ratio, has him tortured, etc., that's where we get into some really sticky territory. From the macro perspective, what point is Jesus making? Well, again, verse 35. <coughs> <coughs> so my heavenly Father will do to you, to each of you, <coughs> from his heart who does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So Jesus is talking about forgiveness and reciprocating forgiveness. And the key word here is reciprocation. Your debt gets paid, what effect should that have on you? 
you get forgiven a debt you cannot repay, what effect should that have on you and how you view other people's debts? You see, the bigger, the bigger picture and the idea of forgiveness We were forgiven our sin while we were still yet sinners, the Bible tells us. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay a debt that you owed you could never pay. Ever. Insurmountable. And he paid it. And, and we all come to a point where we, <clears throat> we come to the cross and we recognize you did something for me I couldn't do for myself. Nobody else could do for me. I owed something I could never pay, and you paid it. You satisfied the debt that I owed so that I could have life and a future and a hope. You forgave me when I was unforgivable. You forgave me. When I was a sinner, when I was lost, you died for me. And now I see it and I accept it and I receive it. Again, the king forgives you the insurmountable debt. Now, do you accept it? Do you repent and accept it or not? And I think here we understand that this servant never really understood the full scope of the forgiveness that they had received and that was made evidence by what reality? He wouldn't forgive others. Again, you can tell somebody that you can understand and you can see, it's the easiest to tell, someone that has no idea what grace is. You know the easiest way to know? They're not gracious. <laughs> it's the easiest way to tell. You see, when you've received grace, What's manifested? Grace. Especially when you know the magnitude of what you've been given when you didn't deserve it. Well, I can't forgive that person. They didn't repent. They didn't ask. They've doubled down. Well, forgive. I forgave you. Can you not forgive others? You see, it all flows downhill. It's a reciprocation. You see, everything good that comes from you is, should be a reciprocation of all the good that God has shown you. God blesses you and you in turn bless others. I was so proud of my son Quincy yesterday. So proud of him. I'm going to brag for a moment. Quincy and his grandfather, my dad goes by G-Daddy. G-Daddy told Quincy, if you score 20 points, I'll give you 20 bucks. He had a basketball game yesterday. To which, on the whole drive to the game, I had to tell Quincy, if you don't pass the ball, if you're a ball hog, I, I know what your grandfather's doing here. But you need to be a good teammate. Because I know in Quincy's mind, he's thinking 20 points is what I got to get. Well, Quincy played a great game. 45 seconds left. He scored 17 points. He has this open layup. Boom, 19. I think he's fouled. My dad's starting to sweat. I'm yelling, and one, give him the free throw, you know, so he can get to 20. Well, they don't. The ref was like, he wasn't fouled. So I turned, I turned to Quincy. I was like, you need one more point. Because at this point, we're winning by like 20, so it doesn't matter. So sure enough, with like 10 seconds left, Quincy comes down the court. 
And he pulls up, and from about 25 feet, just drains. It's perfect, perfect jump shot. And my dad lost it. We're dying laughing. We're all having a blast. 21 points. And sure enough, my dad had to pay up. And Quincy was flattered by it. He was blown away by it. And then we went to Scoops. We got ice cream after the game. And Quincy was wanting to buy some candy. <coughs> so you're 20 bucks, buddy. You do what you want. Buy overpriced candy from Scoops. Not a good investment, but so be it. And Theo and Mabel were like, well, what about us? And it was like, well, y'all didn't score 20 points. It's his money. I didn't make the promise. But my son saw his siblings. He spent all $20 on them. Spent every, every dime on them. Bought them all candy. Again, not, not, a, not a great utilization of, of money, etc. But I, I, we, we got outside. I pulled, I pulled Quincy aside. I said, I said, son, I'm proud of you. You were blessed. And you took that blessing and you reacted the right way. You saw a way you could bless somebody else. That, that's the moment you get it. And Jesus is saying something about forgiveness here. If you've been forgiven so much, but you're not willing to forgive someone else, have you really been forgiven? Do you really get it? Do you really understand it? Now, again, you could take, you could take this to an extreme where it's like you're going to get to heaven and be like, I'm here. And Jesus is like, to the torturers. I don't think that's exactly what's being articulated. But he's hammering home an idea, right? Don't let the king find you being unwilling to forgive, especially when he's forgiven so much. I think we get that, right? I think we understand that. And again, Jesus is taking a parable, a story. He's laying it aside a, a spiritual truth that I think is very plain. Let's dive into chapter 19. You know, because if you're going to go from one complex topic at Christmas time, let's get into marriage and divorce. <laughs> now it came to pass. When Jesus had finished these sayings, <coughs> that he departed from Galilee, <coughs> came to the region of Judea, <coughs> beyond the Jordan. This is unique in Matthew's gospel. Um, John gives us quite a bit of information in the first dozen chapters or so <coughs> of Jesus' Judean ministry. Uh, Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem Judea, etc. <clears throat> the synoptic gospels of which Matthew is included don't provide much information about Jesus' time in Jerusalem or his ministry there. Um, in fact, the synoptic gospels, Matthew in particular, and when we say synoptic, they're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in content. They focus on Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. Matthew actually takes us farther north to Tyre and Sidon. But it's all, it's all north. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus, this is the first time in Matthew's narration that Jesus is coming to Judea. And we know he's coming to Judea and he's going to come to Jerusalem because he's on the way uh, to celebrate the feast of Passover. Verse 2, we're told <clears throat> that great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. 
so this continuation of Jesus' ministry. But the Pharisees came to him, testing him. So it gives us the motivation of their question. This is a test. They're not really interested in his answer. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to, to, to try to get some, Jesus to say something that would alienate his growing popularity, the population. So they have this question. <clears throat> they say to him, is it lawful for a man <coughs> to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, again, I don't want to get into all the rabbinical th- thoughts about marriage and divorce at this time. And There were two different factions, two different schools of thought. You know, there was, there was one school of thought that was like, well, you could divorce your wife, according to Deuteronomy uh, 24, for um, uncleanness. And uncleanness was, was more articulated as some type of a sexual impurity, et cetera, et cetera, what, what not. Um, it boiled down to, like, how do you define uncleanness? Because there was a whole other school of thought that was like, well, uncleanness is broad enough that if, if your wife just burnt your dinner, that that was justifications for divorce. Um, heaven forbid. Note, is it lawful to divorce for just any reason? So Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So he quotes from Genesis 1 verse 27. And said, now he quotes from chapter 2 verse 24 of Genesis. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting. Jesus has asked a question. Is it lawful concerning marriage and divorce? What does Jesus do? He doesn't go to the law at all. He goes before the law. He goes, like, well, before we talk about divorce, which Jesus will do, he says, let's, let's take one step further back. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about God's plan for marriage. And Jesus really gives us some, some very heavy theology here. He does two things. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, note the beginning, at the beginning. Jesus is affirming here a beginning of things. He's affirming here a creation. And not just a creation of everything, but specifically of humanity. Who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. Now, backing up one step, regarding the creation narrative, the biblical account, God made man. He made Adam. Finished creation. And as he's evaluating creation, God noticed that it was not good that man should be alone. That there was none compatible to man. And so God reveals this need to Adam by having him name the animals. And in doing so, he's like, wait, there's, no, there's none suitable to me. I'm, so, I'm flying solo here. There's two, two different giraffes, two different rhinos, two different elephants, one me. And no, God didn't tell him, go and find something compatible. Not what happened. Instead, after revealing, God recognized the need, 
reveals the need to Adam, then what happens? Go to sleep. And we're told that God took from the man a rib in which he then formed the woman. So that the first reaction that Adam had of the woman was, whoa, man. Hence, woman. And said, he said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Don't get all hung up on the rib. He took a rib, made a woman? How do you make a woman out of a rib? The language that's being used is that God, humanity, and Adam. And God took from Adam a part in which he formed the woman. So that when the woman comes back, Adam's like, I'm missing something. And he recognizes that what he's now missing is in her. So Adam is no longer as Adam was. Part of him has been removed and become the woman. So Jesus is like, have you not heard in the beginning? God made them male and female. God took out of Adam the woman. And then what? Marriage is the bringing back together of the man and the woman. Which is why the two shall be one flesh. They are one in the sense that what was missing in man is found in woman. What is not in the woman is in the man. And so when they come together, they're one flesh. Which then gets illustrated because when you become one, you produce one flesh. I've produced three of them. Jessica produced them. But I played a role. But it's the whole picture. It's, 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 it's this beauty in that, that God made the man and he made the woman. He made them equal but distinctly different. So that in their distinctions, unity could be reachieved. Unity and distinction, not unity and sameness. They were different. So, is it, is it lawful to, to divorce, blah, 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 blah? Well, let's, let's talk about how this worked. God made a man and, and a female so that they would come together and be one flesh. They'd be complete together. For those of you that have been married for some time, you understand this. I would have no friends apart from Jessica. Why? I'm not friendly. She is. You know, the, the pop culture reference that is more biblically sound than you ever knew. You complete me. That's what Jesus would say. And the context of marriage. This completion. What is lacking in the man is found in the woman. And what is lacking in the woman is found in the man. So that when you're married together and you become one flesh, you're better together than you are apart. So Jesus is like, we're talking about marriage and divorce. Let's talk about marriage and how beautiful it is, how holy it is, how sanctified that it is, how God made it. That God made it this way. The two shall become one flesh. They shall leave and then cleave to one another. Shall be joined to his wife. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. <clears throat> Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, y'all want to talk about the law, let's talk about God's design. Now, <coughs> okay. So they said to him, why then did Moses command 
that a certificate of divorce, to give a certificate of divorce, and to put her away. First, this is a misquote. Moses commanded nothing. The only reason that divorce is included within the, within the Levitical law is a concession of protection for the woman. Because within that culture, with divorce, like there was a, there was a, a patriarchal hierarchy. If a, if a woman... A woman was now devoid of, of, of the ability to provide for herself, to be taken care of, to be protected. What about the children? Like, it was, it was the hardness. Like, Moses made a concession of protection. You can't, just, you can't just divorce for any reason. It has to be particular. It has to be specific. And you've got to get a certificate, which means other people have to approve it and be involved with it. So he said... Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you. He corrects them. He permitted you to divorce, to divorce your wives. <clears throat> but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality <coughs> and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, is it not better to marry? Uh, Jesus, uh, should we just not do this? You know what's great is I really got into a passage of Scripture that three minutes is going to allow me to really unpack adequately. This is just poor planning on the pastor's part. So admittedly, grace received, grace bestowed. We'll have to come back to a lot of this. <laughs> you know, we live in a world. Yeah, I can't even get into that. It'd be a diatribe in and of itself. Christmas. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't expect this to be the. Sunday before Christmas message. Torturers and marriage and divorce. Welcome to Calvary 316. Christmas, though. I was talking to the kids. Theo asked me. He said, so do we give gifts at Christmas time because of the gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus? I said, I said, that's a good thought, Theo. It's a good thought. It's part of the story. I can see why you would, you would, um, you know, why you would think that. But that's not why. You see, guys, Christmas is not about the gifts that we receive from each other. It's about the gifts that we give to one another within a family, you know. Working hard to try to teach my kids this. It's not about what you get for Christmas. It's about what you're able to give to your mom. It's about the good gifts you give to your dad. That's what Christmas is about. But trying to teach the kids of like, there's a reciprocation here. It's not about what I'm getting. It's about what I'm, what I'm able to give and that blessing. And I said, and that is motivated out of what Christmas is really all about. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
his only begotten son. And you can bring that home. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. And when you begin to understand the magnitude, the enormity of that gift and the implications that has not just for eternity, but for right now, that the debt I could never pay, that I would have to spend eternity paying in prison and torment, I've been forgiven. What a gift. But how do you know someone got the gift? They give the gifts. Forgiveness bestowed, grace bestowed, love bestowed. See what I'm saying? So this Christmas, the wicked servant was an unforgiving servant. And maybe the best gift that you can give is grace. So Father, we dig into your word.